Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we ask that you be with us. That you'd speak to us to your words and that you, through your word, and you'd help us to, to be able to hear and process during Lent, to grow, to consider our sinfulness and our need for your Son to come. We ask this in your Son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So who here has ever bought a piece of furniture or some other item that you needed to assemble? I hear some laughing. So how many people have done this and had a, a bad experience? Yeah, anyone had to maybe take it back and uh, say it was broken or something? <laughs> or that you broke it and you had to uh, make it work? I think we've all had those stories, and um, I've gotten pretty good at putting together IKEA furniture. A lot of the stuff in the in the study upstairs is from IKEA, and also Megan is a good at finding things for our house from IKEA. I, I'm good too. When I go there, there's things I want, but I've got a lot of a lot of experience. But there was this one time where I was. Uh, this was before I was out of the house, and I was um, living at my parents' house still. My dad decided that he was going to buy a leaf catcher. So if you know where my parents live, they live on the corner of 27 and 33 right there across from where the Rosses used to live. And there's a lot of trees in the backyard. So most of my childhood was spent raking leaves in the fall. But eventually my dad decided he was going to try to get one of these leaf catchers that you pull behind the lawnmower. So we go to Lowe's in Bluffton and he gets this one. And we bring it home and we get it out of the box. And my dad is not the kind of person who, who looks at instructions well. Now, he does look at them, but he doesn't always plan and look as much as he should. He just starts to go. And before, before too long, he realizes that the parts that came in the box are not the parts in the instructions. And he's getting very frustrated. But the way my dad is, is he just pushes through and he makes things work. Sometimes that means that things break. But he gets this leaf catcher together and he's frustrated. And then at the very end, I don't know exactly when, but he all of a sudden realizes there's another piece of paper in the box. And this piece of paper tells you that the parts aren't the same as the instructions. And it tells you what parts are supposed to replace the missing ones. We get to the end and then he realizes. Luckily, he figured out which parts went where and he was able to get it together. But it doesn't always come together this well, even when we have the instructions and the right parts. Sometimes we can't get the pieces back together. And sometimes that's my, maybe how life can feel too. It can feel like we can't get the pieces back together. And this is the experience that I think uh, Abram had in our reading from today, from Genesis. So if you want to open up the Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, we are going to look at that together. In the Pew Bible, now I encourage you, if you don't have your Bible, to look in the Pew Bible. Page 11. Follow along as we look at this passage. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 8. Abram is going to hear a story, or he's going to hear something from God, and he can't quite make the pieces fit. So this is how he starts. This starts in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision. So, for good readers of the Bible, 
And we pick up at chapter 15, and we haven't read anything before it. And it says, after this, we have to look at what came before it to know why it says after this. What does this refer to? So if we were to go back and meander and mose, whatever word you want to use, muse, I don't know. I don't use those words, so I don't know which ones are correct. Through the beginning of Genesis. You'll see that Abraham, Abram, as he's formerly known, first comes, in, first comes in chapter 11, verses 27. And then we get to chapter 12, and it says, if you have a heading, it says, the call of Abram. <clears throat> and Abram, in this section, is called by God to move. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll make your name great, and you will bless all peoples through. I will bless all peoples through you. So Abram decides to move when God calls him. And he goes, uh, and then eventually God says, this is a land I'm going to give to you, your descend- descendants. But there's a problem with the descendant, or with the land. He's there and there's a famine, so he has to go down to Egypt. And when he's in Egypt, he decides to not trust God to protect him. And instead, he's try- he lies about who his wife is. And he almost gets the king of Egypt killed. And the king of Egypt actually acts more nobly or more moral than Abram. Abram is not a good character in that story, but the king of Egypt is. But God is faithful and brings him out of Egypt back into the land he's promised. And then Abram and his, and his uh, nephew Lot get into an argument. So they decide to split up and they each choose land. And again, when Abraham or Abram learns about his land, God says, this is a land I'm going to give to your offspring. And then chapter 14 is the most bizarre chapter in all of Genesis. And I say that from the sense that scholars have no idea what's going on with that chapter. The language is different. Everything about it is weird. Um, but all I'm going to say about that is Abram has this interesting encounter with kings in the land where he takes 318 men out of his own household who are trained to fight. So he has his own small army, and he goes and fights these kings and frees his, son, or his nephew Lot, who had been captured. So that's sort of the background. That's what's going on. Abram has this promise from God, but in certain instances, he doesn't seem to rely on God. But God comes again in chapter 15, and this is what God says to him. So after this, after Abram had just fought these kings and comes back, this is what God says. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Those promises, the promise of a nation, the promise of land, the promise of offspring, are coming back. God again is saying to Abram, I'm going to do something for you. But this is the first time that Abram responds in verse 2. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Abram finally speaks. And this is the puzzle piece you can't figure out. This is the piece of the furniture that doesn't make sense. It's the piece that's missing. God, how can I have offspring that will multiply and fill the earth and bless nations and inhabit a land when I don't have a son? Because you haven't given me a son. 
Now, there's one thing we didn't look at, and it's what we learn about Abram's wife in verse 30 of chapter 11. This is what it says about Abram's wife. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. So there's one glaring problem in all of this promise that I'm sure was in Abram's mind that he wasn't thinking about or wasn't vocalizing. How can I have offspring when I don't have a single son to carry on my name? How can I pass this land on? And the case was so intense that Abram had no choice but to have someone in his, in his household named as his beneficiary or of those, the one who would inherit. And this person was not a son or a blood relative. It was a foreign slave. So that was not ideal for people in the time period of Abram. You did not want to pass on your wealth and your family's name to someone who wasn't blood and someone who wasn't even from your people. It just wasn't how they did things. But they had no other choice. He had to give it to someone. But God answers Abram in his worry. This is what he says. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said... Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So Abram is questioning God. Now I hope that we interpret this correctly. Abram was a person just like you and me. All he was was a traveling nomad. He traveled from region to region with his his, uh, cattle so that they could graze. He didn't even live in one place. He was just an everyday person who God asked to do something extraordinary. So just like you and me, he wasn't sure if it would happen. But God tells him, I will give you a son. Or you will have a son and your heir will be from your own blood. And then he says, look at the stars. I'm going to give you more offspring than the stars in the sky for you to count. And this is Abram's response in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abram believed. And because he believed, it tells us it was credited to him as righteousness. So this is one of those church words that no one really knows. What is righteousness? It's weird. All this means is that Abram trusted God's plan for his life. And because of that, he was part of God's people. He was God's chosen person. And he was faithful. And because he was faithful, God was going to use him. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to trust his plan for the world. He wants us to trust what he tells us about who we are. We need not look further to know who we are as humans and what it's supposed to look like to be humans, to live together, than to look to God. This is all he asks. Abram did nothing more than trust that God was going to do what he had said and that he had his best interests in mind. 
But Abram still is uncomfortable about something. Continuing to verse 7, he also said to him, this is God speaking to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So Abram is still uncertain about the land. How, God, can I know that you're going to give me this land for my offspring? I can get behind offspring, but what about the land? And this is how God answers. Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two and arranged them, arranged the halves opposite each other. The bird, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds, the birds he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So God says, okay, well, Abram, you want to know about this land, so I'm going to show you how you can trust me. He says, go get some animals and bring them here. Now, what's interesting is God doesn't tell Abram what to do with the animals, but Abram just knows. So he takes these animals, he cuts them in half. So we have this little aisle here. So imagine he puts the halves about where the pews are at. So he has these animals. Now, the birds he doesn't cut in half. Probably because their bodies would have hardly been existing had he cut them in half. Maybe a head and a body. So he just leaves the birds whole. And he puts them out. Now this is bizarre for us, isn't it? What in the world is he doing? We have no idea. But what he's doing, and this is the thing, Abram knew why God wanted him to have those animals. It's because they were going to make an ancient Near Eastern contract agreement. So whenever we have contracts, we have to meet with lawyers and we have notaries involved. Things get signed and notarized and it's all legally binding. Well, in the ancient Near East, which is simply the time period whenever the Old Testament, the oldest stories in the Old Testament take place, they didn't have lawyers. They had animal halves. So next time you're going to go buy a house or get a car loan or whatever you need to have a lawyer and a contract for, how about you just get some animals and you cut them in half and then you can keep the lawyers out? Right? That would be good maybe. I don't know. But Abram knew what was going on. But he's waiting quite a while because there's enough time for these birds of prey to come and Abram doesn't know what's going to happen. But this is what happens in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God has Abram fall into this sleep, and then he gives him the contract. He says, this is how you know you're going to get the land. Your ancestors are going to spend 400 years in a foreign land as slaves. But eventually, I'm going to hear their cries and bring them out of this slavery back to the land, and I will give it to them. 
God's telling Abram, I'm going to take care of your offspring. They will be here. And then this is what happens next. Verse 17. Then the sun had, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appear and passed between the pieces. All right, so we don't know exactly what this fire pot or the torch represent. The fire pot could have been a representation of how sacrifices were cooked. <coughs> Excuse me. How sacrifices were prepared. And the torch could have represented military might or it could have been uh, used in these rituals. So it was normal for the person walking through that will be holding a torch. But what we do know is that this fire pot and torch appear and pass between the animals. Our animals are here and it's going between them. And we know that that torch and fire pot represent God passing between the animals. But this is also what we know about these ancient Near Eastern practices. Usually it was both parties who walked between the animals to sign the contract. Just like today, everyone involved has to sign on the dotted line. If the bank's giving you money, they're going to give you money, they're gonna, but they're expecting you to pay it back. They don't give you money and not sign the line or have you sign the line. Well, maybe they do, but they made a mistake and they're going to come after you to get it fixed. But God passes through the contract without Abram. God says, I'm giving this promise to you. I'm going to do this. And I'm not asking anything from you in return. I am going to keep this promise. This is how verse 18 sums it up. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham or Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. A covenant. A promise signed through an ancient ceremony of contracts where only God passes and signs and agrees to be the one who upholds his agreement to bring Abram's offspring back to the land to make them into a great nation. So why is this story important for us? It's because this story, the story of Israel, is our story. Now, Lent is the time where we reflect upon our need. We reflect upon our sinfulness. We reflect upon the story of God and what God has done for us. And the story begins here. Because our faith is built on a promise. Our faith is built on a promise given to Abram thousands of years ago. A promise that God would bless all nations through Abram and his offspring. And that is when Jesus comes and fulfills that promise. Our faith is built on a promise. A promise to Abram, a herdsman who was a nobody, wandering around the ancient Near Eastern desert in Israel, wondering if he'd ever have a son. And God says... I will do this and so much more. Our faith is built on a promise. 
So for all of us during Lent, if nothing more, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on who we are as the people of God. We are the people of the promise. And God is faithful to his promises. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you that we are people of the promise. May we learn to trust your promise and know that you'll be faithful to us. May we see that you have been the one to pass through and sign the contract. And all that you ask of us is faithfulness faithfulness and trust that you will fulfill the promise that you've made. May we come to see that your son who came to die and be resurrected is a fulfillment of that promise. And while we reflect upon all that you've done for us and our need for your son's arrival during Lent this year, may you be with us. We ask this all in your son's name who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.